Father, Lord, you're good. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a God of new life. Lord, and as we uh, go through the story of Saul, who would become Paul, Lord, this emissary, this ambassador, this apostle of the good news of who you are, Lord, I pray that you help us see our own life and change and transformation in it. Lord, that uh, like Paul, we can be humbled before you, uh, but Lord, then uh, called your child as well. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Again, we are now in a series called New Life. We've been looking at how encounters with Jesus bring individuals or communities new life, new ways to see the world, new ways to see what God might be doing in and through our lives. And today we're going to be looking at the life of Paul. Let's see if this works. There we go. Starts off, we're going to bounce back just a little bit. And Saul approved of their killing of him. The him here is Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr for the faith. He's the first person who dies for their faith in Jesus. And Saul was right there approving it. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. If you were to guess that that man, who at literally one point was his dream, his goal was to destroy the church, would eventually write over a quarter of the New Testament, would become one of the most outspoken, outgoing Leave it all on the line, Jesus' followers, there was. You wouldn't know that from Acts chapter 8. So what happened? Well, there's, there's three why questions. We're, we're going to be a two-year-old. We're going to be a three-year-old today. We're going to just keep asking why, 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 right? For the first question being, well, why is he so angry? What got Paul, at this point Saul, so worked up? So aggravated that he was willing to participate in killing to make it happen. What was going on with him? Well, we got to understand Saul's background a little bit. And you're going to hear me use the word Saul and Paul a lot. Like Simon who becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul after his encounter with Jesus. So, so what's his background? Well, his background starts, oh, oh there we go. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, uh, he's talking to the Philippian church. He's talking about if there was a way to be justified by the law, justified by the right bloodline. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Saul, who would become Paul, had the perfect bloodline. He was one of the remnant of the people of Israel, who if anyone could claim it matters mostly what's in your blood, Paul had it. And not only was he a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was in the right class, he had the right heritage, Saul had a tribe. He was literally part of the tribe of Israel. And so he writes to the church, and he says, guys, 
if that's what it's about, it's like I was at the very front of the line. And I, and I love that last line he uses. As for righteousness, righteousness, a right relationship with God, as to the law, he says, if we're just doing Old Testament stuff, if we're just doing do the right things, he says, guys, I was faultless. Right? So he had the right bloodline, he had the right upbringing, and more than that, we find out in Acts 22, he says, I am born a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city. I, stuttered, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. That teacher is still today known as one of the most renowned Jewish theologians in all of history. So if you were to go to temple, you would hear commentary from Paul's teacher. Right? So not only did Paul have the right bloodline, not only did he come from the right family, not only was he born in the right spot, not only did he do all the things you're supposed to do to be a good God follower, he went to the right school, he had the right education, he had the perfect teacher. Paul had all of that. And one encounter with Jesus changed how he saw all of that. But where was he when he started? He was enthralled with tribalism. He was enthralled with his tribe, his group. And, and when we become enthralled with tribalism, and this happens throughout all of history, and it certainly happens today, it doesn't just change how we see our tribe, it, it changes how we see everyone else. And what lengths we are willing to go to go against their other tribe. George Orwell has a quote. The habit of identifying oneself with a single nation or tribe, placing it beyond good and evil and recognizing no other duty than that of advancing its interests, the tribe's interests, the abiding purpose of every tribe is to secure more power and prestige, not for him or herself, but for the nation or other unit in which he has chosen to seek his own individuality. So George Orwell wrote Animal Farm, right? 1984. He specialized in what happens when tribes, when nations, sink all of their identity against everyone else. And I love how he defines that, right? The abiding purpose of every tribe is to secure more power and prestige. He's seen that anywhere in our nation today. It's everywhere in our nation today. It's everywhere in every nation today. It's the root cause of the war between Russia and Ukraine. It's the root division between Democrats and Republicans, or black and white and Latino, right? We see our tribe first, and we will do anything. We will go to any length to protect the tribe, including, in the case of Paul, I will murder those who get in my way. Tribalism is at the root of pretty much every war and genocide you have ever heard of. This us versus them mentality, this us or them, because that's really what it's about, right? We have this idea that the pie is limited, and we better get ours. 
And if we don't defend our slice of the pie enough, if we don't make it expand, well, guys, there's only so much pie to go around, and I'm sorry that you're not a part of our tribe. I'm sorry you're not a part of this group. But, y'all, it's us first, it's us. And that is what Paul was enthralled with. That is what our world is enthralled with. That is what we learn. That is what social media reinforces. And, and we all do it, but at the root of it, it's just sin. Righteousness that comes from tribalism, right relationship that comes from tribalism, is an us versus them mentality. And we have a God who is not us versus them, but him for us. And that's the whole story of Jesus. Jesus could have been a tribe all of his own. He could have shown up and been like, what are y'all doing? This was never the plan. Right? He could have come down like Zeus, almighty smiter, and just lightning bolt you guys, right? And that's not what he does, though. Instead, he comes up and he says, I'm for you. I'm here to serve you, to love you, to care for you. He says, I'm for you, and now you're a part of me, and so I need you to be for everyone else as well. But, but Paul's not there yet. But the why was Paul so angry? Tribalism easy. But then Paul is going to meet Jesus, and that's where everything changes. If you got your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We're going to start on page 1395. Oh, sorry, yeah, one last one. This is where the motto thing came from. Tribalism is a hell of a drug. Uh, emphasis on hell. Tribalism is from hell. All hell is is separation from God. And the effects of that, right? Hell is literally eternal separation from God and separation from each other. That's what tribalism does. It's literally from hell, and so it took heaven to come down to start to change it. Eventually, Paul will get to Galatians, where he will say, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all is one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. So how does Paul get from destroying the church, enthralled in tribalism, to there actually is no Jew or Greek? There is no male or female. None of it matters, he says. For all is in one tribe in Christ, according to the promise. Why does Paul change? And now we get to Acts chapter 9. Verses 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He is still enthralled actively against what God is trying to do, against the people, against the church of God, right? He's still enthralled there. He went to the high priest. He asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that is shorthand for Christianity, whether men or women, he may take them prisoners to Jerusalem. All right? Paul is so enthralled, not only is he murdering people in Jerusalem, he's taking the show on the road. So he gets some soldiers, he gets some letters of recommendation, he goes, I'm going to go to the synagogue, one by one, and any who are found as followers of Jesus will just throw them in prison. And the Jewish state says yes. What? Okay, hold on. Israel says yes. I want to be very careful about this. Uh, Israel at that time said yes. Uh, 
They said, yeah, that, 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 that's James. So as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So this light from heaven happens. Saul's freaking out. Right? And typically, encounters with God leave us freaked out. Uh, they leave us a little bit uh, shook, uh, appropriately so, because it highlights our fragility. Who are you, Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, because they heard the sound but did not see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he had to be led to Damascus. For three days he was blind. He could not eat or drink anything. So he encounters Jesus, and his fragility is made in clear contrast to the strength of God. Saul, from, from the right family, with the right bloodline, with the right teachers, with soldiers with him. One encounter with Jesus, and all of a sudden... Saul is helpless. Saul, Saul, Saul can't even take care of himself anymore. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't come to Saul as the smiting God, as the lightning-throwing God, but as a God who wants a relationship with him. In Damascus, there was a disciple, verse 10, called Ananias. And the Lord called to him, Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on a straight street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands and restore his sight. So this is kind of a freaky situation. And Ananias knows this. He goes, Lord, oh, I know about this dude. Uh, I've heard about reports about him and the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias is like, um, counterpoint, God, um, do, do you know who Saul is? Uh, Saul killed Stephen. Saul's here with guards to arrest us. And God tells Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And places his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appointed, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may again see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his sight. Jesus used the church to break through Saul's heart. God created an encounter that revealed the fragility of Saul and his mindset. And all of us have those experiences, right, where we're so confident that we're right, we start to get angry, we start to get self-righteous, and then God encounters us in a moment, and all of a sudden we're like, oh, I, 
I'm not as strong or as certain as I thought I was. And then Jesus uses Christians, he uses his church, not as I was talking uh, with someone earlier, because he has to, but because he chooses to, say, I'm going to use my people to tell the story. That's going to bring the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week, who is the narrator of God's story. He speaks and reality changes. And so Ananias comes and says, I'm here on behalf of Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that you are called to be a child of God. That you are loved and you are redeemed and that the Messiah is for you. And even when we crucified him, we, he turned that into the most beautiful miracle of reconciliation and redemption. And Saul hears the story and becomes Paul, this changed person. Someone on fire for Jesus. How much on fire? Well, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. He's learning about Jesus. He's getting the story. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, uh, did you see what he used to be posting on Twitter? Did you, did you see what he used to be doing on Facebook? Did you see the riots he attended? That dude? Isn't this the same man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch in the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him through a basket in an opening of a wall. This is a changed man. It's an encounter with Jesus. It's an encounter with the church. It's an encounter of a God who was for his people and wanted everyone to be a part of that family. No longer a tribe, but a family where all of us are called to participate, where all of us get the invitation. Paul changes. He starts speaking boldly. Only problem is he's not the only one a part of a tribe. And there are other people who are enthralled with that same tribalism. So now he's in the out group. And what's their response? Well, got to kill him. But that's always the response. Even if it's not a physical killing... It's a canceling. It's an excommunication. It's a we've got to get rid of this person. That's what happens in tribalism. In any type of tribalism, in any type of worldly group, it eventually devolves into that. Paul goes from tribalism to the family of God. He starts preaching, and there are consequences to that. And, and, and what type of consequences? Paul has a list. So in your Bibles, that's page 1471. And he's writing to the church in Corinth. And he's essentially laying out his resume of like, guys, this is why you should believe me. It's like, I've lived it. I've sacrificed for it. This is what he says in verse 22. He gives his resume, so to speak. Whoever dares to boast... And I am speaking like a, real, uh, a, a fool here. I will also boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. All right, so he starts off. He's like, I got the right bloodline. All right. 
because are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. He says, I am more. I've worked harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. And then he just lists off a list that's ridiculous. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That was the max amount of lashes the Roman government would allow to have happen because it was considered a death penalty if you were lashed 40 times. So five times, Paul had been put on a pole and given 39 lashes. One lash less than what would be required for death. And that happens five times. Three times, I was beaten with rods. That sounds like fun. Once, I was pelted with stones. Three times, I was shipwrecked. I don't know why I like that one as much as I do. I guess it's just like my fantasy brain, right? But like, one time, shipwrecked, okay. Twice, okay. Three times, all right. Um, I spent a night and day in the open sea. That sounds like fun. I'm constantly on the move. I've been in danger of rivers, in dangers of bandits, in dangers from my fellow Jews, in dangers from the Gentiles, in dangers from the city, in dangers from the country, in danger at sea, and in dangers from false believers. I've labored and toiled more often and gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I have been clothed and clothed and I have been na- cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of all the concerns of the churches. Whew! That's a lot. That is so much. Paul literally spent the rest of his life risking his life for the good news about Jesus. For the good news that there was a God who would care. That it was no longer us or them or us versus them, but it was God for us. And that it was God's family for everyone else. That we could be one family brothers and sisters with a good God and a beautiful Messiah and a powerful spirit living by us. Alright? So, one last why question. Why was, tri- why was Saul so angry in the beginning? Tribalism. Why did he change Jesus? Wh- why would he risk his life for this type of thing? And not just once, right? It's one thing to be like, oh, I would push some, I would, I would jump in front of a bus to save someone, like this one-time moment. But he would spend the rest of his life either in prison or on the run or being accused or being removed from his own tribe. What happened that, that that would happen? Well, he says this in the book of Philippians. And I think it sums up where his heart was at pretty well. Philippians chapter 3, 7 and following. This is after he talks about being circumcised and the Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, but whatever whatever were the gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, who for his sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That is not a good translation. That word is skubala. This is a 13-year-old Pastor Josh knowing skubala literally means excrement. Um, in some parts of history, it was a vulgar word for excrement. Normally not what I use. Uh, I don't say garbage, but that's what he's saying. Like, the stuff of before is dung. It's probably the most polite way to put it. 
comparison to what God is doing, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having a right relationship with God because Paul did the right thing. Not having a right relationship with God because he went to so many church services or sang the right songs or did the right prayers, but having a righteousness that comes through faith of Christ. A righteousness that comes from God on the basis of Jesus Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering to become like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. And then verse 16. And this is really where it's at. This is the answer to the why. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Y'all, in Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. In Christ, you are a part of his family, and you are redeemed, and you are clothed in the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus. You have a perfect relationship with God, and you are called to have a perfect relationship with every single person sitting in the rows next to you, sitting on the couch next to you on the live stream, but also every single person down at the Spanish food market or online or of every tribe and culture. You've already been given it. You've already been called it. You see, that's the cool thing about the Holy Spirit. That's the cool thing about God. What he declares becomes reality. So when he says you are sons and daughters of God, that is a statement of fact that literally changes reality. When he says you are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, he remembers them no more. That is a statement of fact. Reality has changed. Paul's reality changed when he encountered Jesus. Just like our our, uh, reality changes when we encounter Jesus. Again and again and again. And he moves us from an us versus them mentality to an us for them mentality. That's why Paul was willing to do this. See, he had an identity already. He had a new family already, a family marked by love and patience and goodness, a family that could literally change the world, that that could put an end to the cycle of tribalism, of war and anger and misery, and, and do something new. So much so that Paul would go on and he would write, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I may save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul says, I will become to the Jew a Jew. I will become a Gentile for the Gentiles. I will have empathy for anyone I encounter. Why? Because I believe the good news is for them too. That there isn't an us versus them, that there's not an in-tribe and an out-tribe, but we have a God who's for everyone. That's the good news, that we get to have one family and that we don't have to do it alone, that we get to do it together, that the body of Christ can be the hands and the feet of God working here on earth, bringing love and compassion. And y'all, the church has a really mixed history of this. Because sometimes we do it really well. 
Sometimes the church comes up with ideas like schools and hospitals. You know, we created those. Literally, the church created the first schools and hospitals for anyone to come. So it wasn't just the rich, it wasn't just the wealthy tribe that could have access to school and learning, but no, everyone could have access. That was us. And, and then we've got some less good ones. Lutherans have some less good ones. The Holocaust. We were a part of that because we got in our minds, no, it's us versus them. Our tribe versus their tribe. We get caught up in it. The Crusades. It's that we don't have a perfect track record, but there's good news. Our God has a perfect track record. And even when we don't act like a part of the family of God, our God, our Father, our Savior, and the Spirit are working for us. And they redeem us. They forgive us. They embrace us in the family, and they send us out again. And y'all, we need to hear this over and over and over again, because I would love to say, guys, I'm going to give you this killer sermon today, and, and you're going to get this perfect tomorrow. You're not. I'm not. I, I'm still going to find tribes in the us versus them. I'm going to be scrolling through social media, and I'm going to see something, and I'm going to be like, Arr! and in that, we receive forgiveness of sins. We turn back and we ask God, you know what, I, I'm still wrestling with this sinful nature that just wants to cut me apart from everyone else. I'm again reminded of my fragility before God. But in that encounter, it's not one of judgment, it's one of mercy. And he invites me back into the family, and he invites you back into the family. That like Paul, we can become all things to all people. We can see the humanity in all people. What God is doing in all people. The story God is working in all people. That we can bring God's story at the right time, in the right moment. That they too may know that there is a God who loves them and is for them. A tribe that is no longer a tribe, but a family. And a family that is for the ages. That's the new life that we are trying to bring. Let's pray. God, we as humans are messy. Lord, we as humans are so easily tempted into thinking that we're against others. Lord, if, if they went if their tribe is doing well, somehow it's a threat to us. And yet, Father, Lord, we know that you are the God who is in charge. Lord, we know that our small divisions don't stop your working and your providing daily bread. Lord, so we confess that we're still wrestling with this, Lord, but we are bold to confess. We are bold to have an encounter with you. Because you again breathe your Holy Spirit on us and say, sins are forgiven. Remember them no more. You are a part of this family. Lord God, and I pray that we as a church can, like Paul, work to strive to become all things to all people, especially those who we don't agree with. Lord, that we can be good representatives of Christ, that the good news 
of a God who is still working and active and for us and for, Lord, we say this all in Christ's precious name.